Hello, my name is Marcia Pendleton, and you're listening to a special edition of Backstage Stories. John Leguizamo is an award-winning, multifaceted creator with a career that spans theater, television, film, and literature. His recent work includes the Netflix series, When They See Us, and the Paramount television series, Waco. Today, we'll speak to him about his life, career, and Waiting for Godot, a hybrid production that is theatrical invention and innovative filmmaking, written by Samuel Beckett and directed by Scott. Elliot, Waiting for Godot features John, Ethan Hawke, Tariq Trotter, Wallace Shawn, and Drake Bradshaw. The production is part of the offstage series produced by The New Group and No Studios and is streaming at thenewgroup.org through June 30th, 2021. And thank you, John, for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so I'm so fortunate to get a chance to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been it's definitely been a while. Uh, let's just jump right into it. Um, where sure. are you from? Where did you grow up? And how did these experiences influence your development as an artist? For those like of us being, who, who don't know, I feel like I've been interrogated. Yes, you are. <laughs> uh, I'm, all, I'm used to it. Uh, from back in the day. Uh, well, I was born in Colombia, ha- half Puerto Rican, half Colombian. Uh, I grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens, you know, biggest melting pot in the world. Mm-hmm. I-, I grew up with every ethnic group, every religion, every race, every economic group. Well, not rich people, but but uh, I-, I met those later in life. And, uh, you know, I went to Berkham High. Uh, where, you know, the, uh, the Tribe Called Quest, Q-Tip went there, the Jungle Brothers, Damon Wayans, Crash, the great graffiti artist. So we, we all came up at the same time. And uh, and then eventually I, I found uh, theater. Uh, it, it saved me at 17. Okay, how did you find the theater? Or how did the, the theater find you? Well, you know, I, I, I didn't see any Latin people in, in movies that, you know, around my era in television, except for Freddie Prince. And, and, it, and it was a vast desert of, of Latin faces and, 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 and culture. So I felt a little invisible. I felt a little, uh, you know, underrepresented. That's for damn sure. And uh, so I didn't know that I could be an actor. I didn't know that that was a possibility. And then uh, I was kind of a, a comic guy, you know, uh, in school, in high school. And, you know, at parties, I would do characters and voices and whatnot for my family's parties. And my math teacher said, instead of being disruptive, Mr. Lesquizamo, that, you know, they can make penicillin out of moldy bread. Maybe you can do something with yourself. <laughs> Why don't you become a comic and use your 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 superpower of comedy instead of disrupting to to further yourself? And, and, the, and that kind of landed in me for the first time. I was like, maybe I can, you know, because... Because when you come from not having, you need somebody to tell you that you're worth something, you know. Uh, so I, I needed my mentors, and that that triggered me, and I started taking acting classes at 17, and changed my whole life. Where did you get the training? Where did you start taking these classes? I started at uh, Sylvia Lee Studios, this tiny little spot on 57th Street and 10th Avenue. And then I graduated to HB Studios with Herbert Berghoff, Carol Rosenfeld, Bill Hickey. And when I went to NYU, I started going to uh, Lee Strasberg. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my acting killed Lee Strasberg. I, I don't know if you know that. No, I did not. February 17th, 1982. I did a sense memory exercise in his class. Perhaps the last one he ever saw. And he, he passed away that night. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to laugh. It's not funny, but but not funny. But, but yeah, but my but it's hard not to laugh. My acting hurts. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard not to laugh. Um, what was your first job as an artist? Uh, well, you know, as a <laughs> as a struggling young man, mm-hmm. I, I was doing performance art with uh, a, a collective creation. You know, that was really popular back then in the, in the late 70s because um, Chorus Line was a collective creation where they <laughs> they they gather people to get their stories, basically steal them uh, and take credit for it <laughs> and get paid. But they don't get paid. Anyway, I was doing a lot of that. 
with Norman Brinsky, this, this genius from Argentina, this brilliant director who came in. We went to Spanish Harlem. We went to LES, Lower East Side, and we would talk to the community. And then we would create these stories around their, their, their stories about their lives with the Bread and Puppet Theater Company, which is really famous from the 60s. And, and that's, that's how I started. What kind of experiences can you uh, tell us about that created these moments that bring us to where you are today? Some seminal moments for, for you in your development as an artist. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, uh, I mean, th- 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 there were several moments. I mean, obviously, one of the biggest ones for me was in, in my acting class with Sylvia Lee. Uh, she gave me the perfect play called Dino about a troubled youth who was in therapy, trouble with the law, hated his father. And I was like, oh, my God, somebody wrote my story. <laughs> How did they get a hold of my story? So I did that piece in her class. And, you know, it was a showcase. It was called Showcase Theater. And so they did showcases and all these NYU directors came in and they were like offering me all these shorts. So I felt like a movie star, you know, I mean, to do that, that was the biggest thing I'd ever seen in my life. So I started to believe in myself that I, I might have something to give. And then I got to say, seeing um, Priscilla Lopez in Chorus Line when I was 15 was huge for me because she was a Latin performer. She was Puerto Rican. She was on stage. People were looking at her, admiring her. And I was going, oh, my God, maybe I can do this. Maybe there is a place for me, for people who look like me. You talk about theater saving your life. And um, we know that in America, anyway, um, Broadway is considered the pinnacle of the, the theater world here. What was your first Broadway production? And I saw... Um, uh, Latin history for morons, which I thought was very informative and very, very funny. Um, Talk about your journey on on Broadway to Broadway. Well, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, Broadway was everything was the pinnacle, not necessarily not not necessarily the best in, in, in my era, you know. Mm-hmm. In the 70s and 80s, off-Broadway for actors and writers and playwrights was the, um, uh, I was going to say the shit, but you know. And you that, just that, did. That, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just did, like street lingo. But um, it was, off-Broadway was where real acting was happening and where real writing was edgy and, and, and represented life. It wasn't just trying to be, you know, entertainment and light and forgettable and, and escapist. It was about making you having to look at yourself and humanity and, 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 and question yourself in your life. So, you know, when I saw True West with John Malkovich, it, the, the, uh, what you could do on stage and acting was put on a whole other level. When I saw Pacino on my 17th birthday, my mom got me tickets to see him in Circle in the Square in American Buffalo. Wow. wow. And he spat on me because I sat up front <laughs> and uh, I felt baptized into acting. I mean, that off-Broadway was everything. Uh, so I started off-Broadway, you know. So I started doing Mamba Mouth at Wynn Hammond's American right. Place Theater, one of our national treasures. Although I wasn't in the theater because he loved me, but he didn't really believe that, you know, Latin works could could work. So I was in the hallway of the American Place Theater with 70 fold-up seats in a, in a removable platform. And I started at 7. I had to be done by 8.30. So the main stage, the real show could go on. And they'd pick up all my stuff and remove it. But, you know, when Frank Rich gave me uh, a great review, boom, there was, you know, Al Pacino in my house and a folding seat and Arthur Miller, uh, John Malkovich, um, uh, uh, Sam Shepard came. I mean, it was was the moment that that I was like, Latin product is for everybody. You know, everybody understands we're all human and we're all the same. And, and, and they and they can see it through my Latin filter and and receive something. So that 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 was a big moment for me in, in my theater development. And then, you know, uh it got made for HBO and mm-hmm. and then Latin audiences found me because they got the bootleg HBO. And uh <laughs> and then they found me. So that next time I did Spicarama, the house was sixty percent 
Latin. And that was huge because now it became became church. It became call and response. They were hooting, hollering and stomping at moments. And you can hear them at the serious stuff, like weeping quietly. And, and, they, and it became like this connection between us because we knew we'd never see ourselves. And this is a celebration of everything we were. So it, it, that that was like gave me the impetus to create Freak, you know, and to go to Broadway. Finally, you know, it was a very sexualized show. Uh, I was doing a lot of stuff that that wasn't really being done in comedy at the time, like very sexualized thing, talking about, you know, sperm and playing with sperm and 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 d- domestic violence in a comedy and child abuse in a comedy. So I had a lot of really dark issues that co- com- comedians and comedy didn't really touch in America. But I wanted to change comedy in America because I, I came from a much darker world, and I and I and I knew there was room for it somewhere. I don't need that. People don't like the women strong. No, no, especially Spanish women. Forget about it. Meet Gladys, one of the iconic characters from the critically acclaimed production of Spicorama, written and performed by John Leguizamo. We're just ornaments and a female eunuch. Mm-hmm. And God forbid that we should go for what we want because then you are a bitch. <laughs> Mira, Miguelito, Miguelito, if you fall off that dryer and break your legs, don't come running to me, all right? <laughs> I don't know. I wish I could change my name to Christmas or electricity. Because Gladys is so plain, you know? Then anybody who find me mysterious, I get invited to all the parties, right? Because I always, I've always wanted to have a life, you know, one of those that you could talk about. Because I had the brains, but not the clothes. That's why I dropped out of high school. I said, And he said, she's having a bad dream. But don't worry, it's diet. What makes you say yes to a project? Well, you know, sometimes I'm not going to lie. It is money. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you do got to pay the bills. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm, I'm really I really regret it. And sometimes I don't. But when I when a great role comes to me, like when they see us. Uh, that I felt was incredibly important that I would have paid Ava DuVernay to, to be in because it was such a powerful piece, beautifully acted, beautifully directed, written about systemic race, racism in America and believe it or not, in New York City, you know? And uh, that that role to me, playing the father of one of the Central Park Five was was, a, was, was an incredible deep opportunity for me and, and to work with these young actors and to mentor them, it was that, that's that's what I love. That's when I love my work when when it becomes you know a learning experience and, and it elevates humanity. I mean that that's that's when I come to life. There was a brilliant piece. It was absolutely brilliant. Every facet of it oh, yeah. was just extraordinary. Miss um, Ava, all I can say is, if I ever met her, I would just bow, bow down, bow down. You got to. <laughs> you got to pay tribute. You I mean, have she, to. She really, she really did an incredible job. I mean, she was so detailed and, so, and such a perfectionist in a, in a beautiful way, not in a taskmaster way, but, but in an encouraging way. You know, she used four cameras. She, they were all women camera operators, which was really exciting. Huge female crew. I mean, it, it, yeah, it was revolutionary. Let's revisit moments from When They See Us, in which John plays the father of Raymond Santana Jr., one of the exonerated five. Is my mom here? It's just us. You and us. Who are you in the park with? I don't know names. I just got lost. Where did you see the lady? One, one lady. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. What's going on with my son? Your son was involved in a rape in Central Park. No, 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 no,
they saw you rape the lady. I didn't see a lady or hit anyone. I didn't see any lady. Kevin. I didn't see any lady. I want to see my son right now, right now. Whatever they said, I did. Now, let's talk a little bit about Waiting for Godot. What is the play about? Because we cannot assume that everybody knows what it's about. We may know the title, but not what it is. Right. I mean, it's an iconic piece. Um, I think it's one of the, the plays that has influenced almost every playwright in the world. From David Mamet's American Buffalo to Sam Shepard's True West. I see it in so I see the uh, see the um, impact it had on on, on all these playwrights. Um, it was written after World War II, where Europe was, you know, bombed, uh, homelessness, joblessness, isolation, loneliness, depression, hunger, and so all these elements are in Waiting for Godot. Uh, it's about it's an ex- existentialist piece of theater because it's it's trying to put meaning into a meaningless life, uh, which is kind of the viewpoint of of Beckett, uh, uh, especially, I guess, after World War II. And the reason we decided to do it now was because we felt the pandemic, four years of the the former ex-president and and the way America was being divided by the digital revolution and and the tribalism forming and and the abuse of of Black lives and Latin lives. all that felt like it resonated, the joblessness, you know, unemployment, depression that we, we're, we're living through right now. It's like this piece is speaking to us in a moment right now so clearly that that's why we decided to do it, because I never really loved the piece. I sort of enjoyed it, but never really loved it because I just found it kind of too too light for my taste. But I think in this production, I think Ethan Hawke, Wallace Shawn, we all, we all Skylight, we went to a darker place. We, we gave the values of depression. There's plenty of talk of suicide in this piece. There's talk of, of starvation, uh, of, th- of, of thieving. You have to be a thief to survive in this world. And, and we gave the, the humor that, that it, it deserves as well, you know. But it was, it was a, the first time it's been allowed to be filmed. Uh, it's never, the state has never allowed. You're not allowed to cut anything. You're not allowed to add anything. You have to maintain exactly to what Beckett wrote, and we did that except we were allowed to film it. So it became this hybrid of film and theater. And I think, I don't know, I think it's one of, the, not because I'm in it, but I just think it's one of the most brilliant versions of Godot I've ever seen. How did the project come to you? How did you get involved with it? Well, my friend Ethan, I've done three movies with him and I'm such a big fan of him as, as a dude. I just love him as a human being and an actor. It's just like one of these hungry guys, intellectually hungry, you know, creatively hungry, always challenging himself, always up for a, a great artistic challenge. So he called me up and he goes, you know, Donna, what about waiting, doing, waiting for Godot? You would be go, go, I'd be Didi. I go, I don't know, man. I don't know if that piece is for me. <laughs> you know, I like contemporary type stuff and I like, you know, I like, I like edgier things. So I said, but let's read it. Let's read it. Let me give, give it a shot. So we started reading it together, just the two of us. And I started seeing the power of this piece. I started falling in love with the language and the ideas behind it. And uh, and, and and I said yes. And Tariq from The Roots joined in, bringing an incredible presence. Wallace Shawn and his incredible gift takes one of the most unintelligible speeches that I've ever seen or heard and turns it into sense i mean you, you can you feel like you understood it even though it's impossible to understand when you look at it and uh and, and then then we, we shot it you know i was we, we did it through zoom use zoom as 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 a device we didn't ignore it we tried to use all the elements of it the glitching the freezing <laughs> we tried to use all that uh the the isolation and loneliness that zoom kind of gives you a little bit even though you it, it makes you feel like you're connected but you can't really not. touch somebody and you can't really stare in their eyes the way you do when you feed your soul when you when you meet somebody uh and and, and i did it you know and and and, I, and and it's one of my proudest moments what did you do to prepare uh for this very very unique experience uh in terms of 
performing on Zoom and not being in the same room with the the people that you are creating with. What, um, how did you prepare? What was the rehearsal process like? Well, it was six months for a four day shoot. So uh, we, uh, uh, Ethan and I started working together in August. We shot it February uh, and April. So, you know, it was a long, because the dialogue is really complicated because it's a little repetitive. It's a little, sometimes it, it, it's, it's just line, 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 you know, like, like a little David Mamet. And so you have to be really on point. Otherwise you lose the rhythm and, and the sense. Because I think I asked, who are we waiting for? Like maybe 40 times. And, and <laughs> if I'm not paying attention, I could be in act two or act one or, you know, I don't know where, where I'm at. And, um, and, and, and then I, I, I did a lot of readings on, on, on zoom. I was doing a lot of my readings of my plays, of my screenplays, doing readings for um, Atlantic theater company with a lot of great actors. So I was doing a lot of performing on zoom and starting to understand that you know you can't really <clears throat> sorry you can't really jump on somebody's lines because then it, it, it glitches out. You 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 do have a little filmic ability, so you don't have to you know do as much because the camera is it's it's like almost like film. It 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 it'll, it sees enough, so you just have to do just enough. But you got you do got to do something, you know, because it's still a play. It still demands your 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 creativity. It demands that you commit and, and make a choice because in film you can get away with not making choices sometimes because film is very forgiving that way. It allows an audience to imprint on you what they think you're thinking, but on stage, nah, <laughs> you better be thinking something because no, nothing's going to, you know, fake it for you. There's no editing. There's no cutting. There's no, nobody's going to fix it for you. you. You better be making choices. Did you have any input in creating the, the, the physical world of the play, uh, the set, uh, did you collaborate uh, with Queen Jean on um, costumes? Uh, what was going on with creating that physical world? Because I understand that a set needed to be created in several different places. You know, for you, for Ethan, for uh, Tariq, for Sean, and for. Um, the young man who played uh, the boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, it was a very collaborative experience. I mean, Scott Elliott was so much fun to work with in this crew. I mean, amazing team. And and uh, one of the greatest set designers on Broadway right now. Uh, he created the vision of these sort of black box bunkers with windows so that we could see the tree, you know, the tree, the iconic tree that's in every stage play of, of waiting for Godot, sort of a barren dead tree landscape. Well, that was in our windows. You, you couldn't see it, but that's what we would refer to as the, as the, as the tree that we wanted to hang ourselves from. <clears throat> Lighting was by Kramer Morgenthau, one of the great directors of photography <clears throat> working today. And uh, I was in London. The editor was in Israel. Uh, Kramer, the director of photography, was in California. Uh, Wallace Shawn was in like, Manhattan. Ethan was in Brooklyn, <laughs> Connecticut, Connecticut, I think. Yeah, we were all over the place. So yeah, it was, it was tricky. You know, for me, it, it was always kind of way late. You know, I was, we started like at 10 PM. <laughs> and so I, like at 3 AM, I'm starting to get my eyes starting to cross and I'm starting to get a little uh, mumbly, but, uh, it, it was a blast. Talk a little bit about being in what would happen during a rehearsal? Um, it, were there any moments where sometimes you just got stuck and needed to work through things? Share a little bit yeah. about those kinds of moments. Yeah, you know, the, the, the four, when the four of us were on camera, it got a little tricky, you know, as to where we would look, where would, where would they be in the Zoom, you know, Brady Bunch boxes. So we were all looking at the right place. When we had to do exits, we all had to exit the same direction. You know, all, all those things are tricky that, 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 you know, that there's a big, some vaudeville elements that Beckett wrote into it. I guess some kind of Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello moments and, that he wrote into it where we had to do these vaudevillian things of switching hands, switching hands. So Ethan and I had to have perfect timing for the hat. And then you had to 
catch the replica, the, the, the right hat at the right moment, because otherwise it would throw the whole thing off. So we'd have to stop and and reshoot or, or re- rehearse it till we got it right, the right rhythm. Because if we did it too much, it got a little boring. But if we did it too little, it wasn't funny enough. So we had to find all those little elements that you get in, in, a, in a rehearsal. We had to do it on Zoom, but but we were able to do it. I'd like to speak a little bit more about the actual performance, uh, the four-day shoot. What was it like to connect with other artists? Because you're you're, you're just not in the same room. What mm. what's the kind of focus and energy that you need to to bring to that. So anybody watching the the performance can feel what is intended. Well, you know, I mean, when you're working with with an actor of, of the ability of an Ethan Hawke, who who is such a finely tuned instrument, <clears throat> you know, he bridges that isolation and that separation because he's listening to everything I'm saying, how I'm saying it, the, my tone and everything. And he plays off it. So I felt very heard. You know what I mean? <clears throat> we were really playing off each other. And, and, and that's when it was the best. Whenever, whenever he and I were like really, really, really listening and looking at each other and taking each other in and letting the impulses come from what we were experiencing in the moment, that's when it was magic mm-hmm. and you know and it happened many times in rehearsal we go oh this is what we got to chase you know not our idea of these characters or the situation or beckett but letting it really come from us what we're feeling in the moment what what is what is beckett's words making us want to say and do and we laughed a lot we, we joked a lot some of those things ended up in in the piece some of them didn't mm-hmm. but we, we we got to experiment i mean scott did give us what what Broadway is missing it's a, a lot of times. Peter Brooks said it. Uh, you can't put up a Broadway show in three or four weeks rehearsal time. And you, it, it can happen. There can be miracles, but it's not a healthy way to put up a piece. We had the six months with Brooks suggests a year. And I think he's really on point about that to have a chance to really explore, experiment instead of just trying to memorize and and have a director just try to you know stage it, but really explore what does this peace mean? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to today's people, uh, you know, society? And and I think you need that time. And we had, I had the luxury of six months. I go, man, if I could do Broadway shows with six months rehearsal time, that would be money. Uh, what impact has this experience had on you as an artist for projects that followed Waiting for Godot? How are you different as an artist? I feel changed. So it's a great question, and uh, I, I don't know what made you ask that because I, I, I feel I think we all really changed. Every every one of us, the performers and director, we connected in such a intense way that after you finished shooting, I hit like a postpartum thing. I was like very depressed, and I kept calling Ethan, and I said, "I got to talk to you, man. I just can't go cold turkey anymore because I'm used to rehearsing with you every day from three to, you know." 8 p.m., whatever it is every day. And now for six months, now I'm not going to talk to you anymore. No, we can't, you can't do that to me. So I, I don't know. I, I felt like as a writer, I definitely changed. Something about the structure of that piece and, 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 and the beautiful message within the you know, existentialism of it all, the meaninglessness, meaning, meaninglessness of life is that all we have, it's not material, it's not status, it's not fame, it's, it's our connections to others and how much we 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 get, we give to others and how much we get from others how much love and uh that's that's really the message in the play these two guys need each other desperately they can't function in the world without each other and that's what you know every playwright has borrowed when you see a two man piece or a two hander they're borrowed from beckett so i felt very changed by that you know and i definitely look at 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 period pieces in a very different way. I, I, I feel like I, I can bring something to, to pieces, to, to older works. I can bring a, uh, a nuance and, 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 a, and a moder- modernity to it that, that will turn audiences like, like me on. How has the pandemic and the racial reckoning and the economic reckoning, uh, the economic tsunami 
that um, oh, the capital we, T we have gone through. How has that changed you as an artist? Yeah, well, you know, the pandemic gave me the opportunity. I mean, I was luckier and fortunate, more fortunate than others that I was able to, you know, not work and not do things just for money or for, you know, filling my time, my, 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 my dance card. I was able to go, what do I really want to do? What do I really want to create? And, and, and the answer came to me, you know, they were, I, I, I want to write the great American play. I, I, I want to create some great Latin content that's so missing because we Latin people are the Latin, the, the oldest ethnic group in America after Native Americans and the largest ethnic group in America and the, the most excluded in Hollywood. And I'm not going to talk about New York City because we're equal in population to whites, but less than 1% of the stories are staffed at the New York Times, less than 1% of, the, of, of any other of the newspapers or, or magazines in New York City with the banners on its you know, the, the, the name of the city and the banner who were less than 1% of the stories or the staff. So it's kind of like a, a cultural apartheid that, that, we, that we live in. It's so weird, you know, no, nobody's reporting about all the things that we're accomplishing or, or succeeding in. And I have to constantly <laughs> berate the, the papers for their lack of in- inclusion. So I wanted to make a difference. You know, Black Lives Matter was an incredible movement. And we finally heard it because Black Lives Matters has been exist- in existence. But be- because COVID, we were all home and we had to deal with ourselves and look at ourselves. And we had the time and the focus. And finally, Black Lives Matter got the attention and the support it deserved. So that was a beautiful moment. Uh, I, I, my daughter marched. I marched. I mean, it, it was so such a coming together of all of us. All of us are much stronger together, you know, and and it's such an important cause. And I think it made Hollywood look at itself, you know, and 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 um, and industries and corporations and looked at themselves and go, who is in our office? How many of them are black, Latin, women, Asian, LGBTQ? Who who's? And then you, we, the New York Times did this great piece because. Uh, this brother, I can't remember his name, and myself were two people who were, who were asking executives to take pictures of their offices and show me where the Latin and black people are. And, and the New York Times did that. And they showed all the studios, how many women, how many black people, how many Latin people, how many Asian people and, and corporations. They did it with everybody. And we saw what it was. You know, it was an all white boys club. And um I think things are really changing. I think Black Lives Matter with the COVID somehow became a force of change. And, and I, you know, obviously the, the horrific four years uh, of, of uh, the former president, all these things combined together to create the, this, this galvanizing moment. I, I think America is, is, is moving forward. Well, we're still moving backwards in so many ways. We're still moving forward in so many other great ways. That's what makes America great. We can still move forward within oppression and within restriction, you know, taking away our voting rights wherever they can and and trying to take away, you know, Roe versus Wade. I mean, within all these things, we're still moving forward somehow. And I believe that all of the things that you were speaking of, all of the things that, that we're uh, currently experiencing, pushing back um, on folks who really have no intention of of sharing power at at, <laughs> at all uh, this is where i believe artists um come in um because you you comment uh upon our current situations um with the work there are a lot of things that we don't that we would never know about had it not been for the work of artists uh, recording uh, what was going on at at the time and some of the work that has been created during this this time period has just been phenomenal mm-hmm. and the fact that we have been able to see it through this through the uh, technology 
that has allowed us to um, experience things from all over the world, from all over the world. It, it has provided access mm-hmm. and to a certain extent, equity. Yeah. Because in many cases, I said, oh, I would never be able to afford to see this person, this person, this person, and this person on the stage at the same time because the cost is prohibitive and mm-hmm. I'm working the business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, true that, true that. I work in the business. So um, that has been the amazing part uh, for me coming out of this experience. There is nothing like live theater. When you were talking about uh, the production where 60% of the audience was uh, Latinx and there was the call and response. Yeah, yeah. I miss that. You know, I, oh, I yeah. miss that. I absolutely <laughs> miss uh, being in the same room, under the same roof with people and uh, sharing uh, the experience of live performance. I cannot wait to get back to that. But in the meantime, there are amazing productions like Waiting for Godot that people can take advantage of, uh, offered by the new group and no studios. There are some ancillary programs that are being offered in conjunction with Waiting for Godot. Uh, One of the things was um, filming Beckett, moderated by Nancy Giles. Love her. uh, Oh, wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. CBS Sunday Morning. What was it like for you to take part in that panel? And did you make discoveries about the play and your performance while talking about yeah, you know, on that panel. Yeah, yeah. You, you you always learn things because, you know, as we as we all, you know, collect our memories of the situation from Tariq to Wallace uh, to Scott Elliott and Ashley Monet, the assistant director. You start going, oh, yeah. And you start piecing it together. And and we realized how we, we all influenced each other, how uh, how much we laughed in rehearsals you know, at, at the at the work, at each other, and how it just helped us survive the isolation. Because I was in London, you know, I was under heavy lockdown. So these these moments with, with everybody else was so pleasant to me that I didn't feel so isolated in my room in a hotel in, in London, in Soho. You know, I, I remember, yeah, they were, I just I learned how needy I was because of the pandemic and how it came through in the work, which was go-go. You know, mm-hmm. go-go is a needy, you know, de- codependent, manipulative <laughs> kind of character, you know. And, uh, and, and Didi is also, but, but Didi is the alpha and I'm the beta. But but uh, sometimes Gogo is the one that really has the power. What is going to be, what is next for you? Anything that you can can speak about and... And and in that, what's next? How is this experience from waiting for Godot uh, impacting what's going on with you right now? Well, uh, Kiss My Aztec, which is uh, a, a, a musical comedy, kind of like Book of Mormon meets Spamalot that I've been working on for the last few years, uh, is, is going to be in Connecticut, in Hartford, uh, and hopefully... Bouncing right to Broadway, I'm hoping. Um, so that 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 I'm really proud of that piece. It talks about the conquest, and we make genocide funny. If if you can believe that that can be made funny, but uh, I think the, you can you know, make anything funny. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I do my best. I do my best to make things accessible to people who who it wasn't accessible to before. And uh, I did this great movie called. It's about this great uh, Auschwitz uh, concentration camp survivor, Harry Haft. True story. The movie's called The Survivor by the genius um, Barry Levinson with the, the most gifted actor in America, uh, Ben Foster. And it's a true story of this uh, Jewish young man in, in one of the concentration camps who, who was made to fight other Jewish prisoners 
on the weekends as entertainment to, to the death of, uh, for the Nazis. And he survived and, and they fed him, they protected him and he escaped and he came to America. And in 1949, he fought Rocky Marciano oh. and uh, true story. And I played his, his coach, his boxing coach in New York city, 1949. Uh, when is that going to be released? Uh, it's coming. It's coming. I think they want a theatrical release, so they're waiting for all theaters to be available because they know it's going to be one of those important events. Absolutely. Even though um, I have spent a lot of time uh, streaming, sitting at at the desk, <laughs> uh, watching some some great content. Uh, even going back to the movie theaters is something mm. to look forward to, to see things that are, are larger than life. Um, I think it was... Larger than our phones and our computers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. And again, being in community with other people. Mm. Being in community with other you know, people. I just went to a couple of Knicks games mm-hmm. and ah, it, the, what you're talking about, that sense of community, mm-hmm. of a shared communal experience that, you know, we're herd animals and we need that. That's how we feed our souls. And being at those two Knicks games, oh my God, it was so much fun. You know, the first time I went, it was only 2,500 people, 10% capacity. Next time was 90% capacity, like 18,000 people. And the energy, the screaming, the yelling, all of us yelling at the same time, whooping or booing at the same time was so much fun. Absolutely. I do not know what it's like to go to a Knicks game. I've been in New York for over 20 years and have never done that. (laughs) I'm going to have to take you. I'm going to have to take you out. (laughs) I I owe you that. I would love. (laughs) I'm going to say courtside, you and I. Okay. Uh, It's a day. I will will definitely go. Um, Believe it or not, um, back in the day, I was a, a cheerleader. I oh, spent, look at you. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a cheerleader in high school and in college. And in college, it was uh, basketball. I went to uh, a big five school in Philadelphia, and that was the tradition. And after I left college, I basically left basketball <laughs> behind. Just left it behind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there's nothing like being in a stadium with 10,000 18,000, 20,000 people. That's it's electric. There's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it. Getting back to the play just for the, the next few minutes here. What do you want people to come away with after witnessing Waiting for Godot? Because when I watched it, I felt that I, it was a witnessing, not just Mm. watching something. Yeah, that, thank you for that. They, I, I, we all felt like we were part of something really special uh, because we really were tapping into desperation, loneliness, neediness. You know, uh, I, I think the beautiful message of this piece is, you know, appreciate the people around you because that's all you got really in the end. That's really all you leave this planet thinking about mm-hmm. is the people who are looking over you hugging you and uh you know there's so many times in the piece that i ask for a hug or that mm-hmm. dd gives me a hug and you know obviously it was a virtual hug but i felt it <laughs> i felt it go through the zoom you know and but that need that need that human need that human vulnerability to to be available to that is such a you know, we all know what that is because now that we're allowed to hug each other, we, we I'm, you know, I'm holding people a little too long. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm Latino anyway, so I'm always going to be hugging a little too much and kissing too much. But, but, but it, yeah, even I'm extra, extra. So, are you on social media at all? Yeah, yeah, I, I do the gram, Facebook, Twitter, trying LinkedIn now. So, how do people reach you through that? Uh, you know, just write at John Leguizamo, and that's my my same handle on on all platforms. On all platforms, great, great. I want to thank you, John Leguizamo, for being with us today, and I want to encourage everyone to make sure you check out Waiting for Godot now streaming at the New Group. 
org and also take advantage of the ancillary programs, the special events they have going to support the work. And the production will be streaming again at thenewgroup.org through June 30th. I want to thank you for listening and have a great day. You have a great day. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's such a joy to talk to you. Thank you. And with us now is Scott Elliott, the Artistic Director of the New Group, an off-Broadway theater institution. He is also the director who brought John Leguizamo back to his off-Broadway roots for the stunning reimagined virtual production of Waiting for Godot. Welcome, Scott. Hey, Marcia. Thanks for having me on. Let's just jump right into this. How did the idea of revisiting Waiting for Godot come to you? And why was it important for you to make this project happen? Uh, Well, you know, it was, uh, gosh, it was sort of like at the moment in the pandemic when, you know, it was a really terrible thing, obviously, for every theater, not just us. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm not asking for pity, but it was really a terrible moment because we had to cut back and do those sorts of things, close shows, you know, stop workshops, pull the rug out from artists who were, you know, excited about um, their projects. It was a very, it was, I don't even think I felt the emotions that you had to go through in order to do all of that. Um, And then, well, it was done. And, and uh, one of our, one of my uh, collaborators, um, Ethan Hawke, you know, long time we've we've worked together a million times, and he's on the board of the new group and is a a close friend. You know, I think that he was sort of, you know, maybe consoling me a little bit and sort of saying, you know, you know, I just was reading Waiting for Godot with my kids. You know, it had such impact, you know, to me. And he's, you know, he was. I think he's always been really attracted to one day, to have one day worked on the thing. So he said, pick it up and just read it. And you know, I was a little resistant because I never. I never saw myself as somebody engaging, you know, I like Beckett, but I never saw myself engaging with it in a, in a way. Um, but I have to say at that moment in time, when I read that play, all I wanted to read was Beckett and all I wanted to, to see and hear was Beckett, which is a very, very strange thing for somebody like me. But um, I just went there and then, you know, Ethan and I asked John to join us. And we started reading it, you know, I mean, of course, I wasn't reading it. I was just sort of commenting and trying to figure out how we might be able to make something out of it. And I think we all just got really addicted to it in a really organic way. Um, Asked John and Tariq, uh, young Drake Bradshaw, who's the the son of one of our favorite playwrights, Thomas Bradshaw, to participate uh, as well. And uh, yeah, we just kept meeting and working on it. And there would be weeks where we wouldn't meet and then we would meet. And, you know, it just became clear that we were um, we were making something. And uh, and so we decided to make it to the best of our ability and call in as many favors as we could call in. And and uh, it was it was really an amazing experience. It was it was in retrospect. I don't know how I could have gotten through emotionally the whole thing without it having not made it. And so for me, it's very close to my heart. You're an artist, and artists have to create, period, you know, and to go through something like the pandemic, where we have, we're all forced to to shut down. Uh, It was, they call it the pandemic pause, but it seemed like the world had come to an end, so we all needed to be able to take care of ourselves emotionally. And I am thrilled that Waiting for Godot happened because it seems as though it did the same thing uh, for John as well. What was it like collaborating with John Leguizamo? Well, you know, we became friends uh, not, you know, a few years ago. um, And... I don't know. I think we had, you know, I had always, you know, I thought he was a genius for a long time. We had met, but then all of a sudden we found ourselves in a situation where you're working on something together and 
you become friends because you have chemistry. And so we became friendly. And uh, so that was really beautiful to sort of have Ethan and John who also felt like friends. So it, it had a, you know, there was something cathartic about every time we met for hours on Zoom. There was something so wonderful about turning on the camera and having them there and knowing that they were there supporting me and supporting the new group and supporting each other. Um, and John, you know, I mean, I, of course, mostly know John from his movies and his, you know, solo stage work. And, uh, um, and in the case of this, like, I think that John's performance in this is revelatory in a way, because I just have never seen this side of John, uh, which is really the John I know, you know, like he, there's such a human element to what he's doing in this, um, that it was a, it was such a wonderful thing to adjust it, you know, cause that's what I, and that's all I could really do would, would be to sort of talk about things and help people adjust, adjust things. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, I love the guy and I feel really even closer with him now than we did before. And, um, can't imagine my life without him. He's amazing. What did you learn about yourself through working with him? Wow. You know, um, you know, I guess I learned that because John is a really compassionate guy, you know, in many, many ways. He really sees the forest through the trees in so many ways. And 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 being with him and just talking to him as a friend, you know, what he gives me is that sort of focus, you know, and sort of like understanding that, you know, there's a forest through the trees. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and uh and so I think I learned, I, I think I got a little bit more focused. And, and another thing, and just sort of a crazy ego thing is that he, he also, you know, when you click with an artist, as I feel John and I did, as I have with Ethan in the past, um, it also gives you a, 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 when you're a director or a producer, it gives you a sense of confidence, um, a sense of self-confidence because you know, you still have the ability to reach and that's, so much of this job is the ability to sort of reach people, whether it's the artists that you're working with or the people who are watching the work that you're making. Thank you so very much for taking a few minutes to share your experience with John Leguizamo and Waiting for Godot, which people can now watch at the new group. That's the new And it is streaming through June 30th, 2021. Thank you, Scott, and have an amazing day. You too, Marcia. Thanks so much. This has been Backstage Stories, where we've been speaking with John Leguizamo and Scott Elliott, Artistic Director of The New Group. I'm Marcia Pendleton. Thanks for listening.